0: to refresh your memory of the four Gospels in the New Testament that tell the story of Jesus, you know, the first four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Only two of them have vignettes pertaining to the birth sequence. That's Matthew and Luke. But all four of them tell about John the Baptist the character above my head here in the mosaics. Scholars believe that the birth narrative started circulating once the Jesus community was around for a couple of decades. But John was there from the beginning and considered a very significant part of Jesus' story, more so than evidently telling about his birth and so on. So much so, that Mark, the earliest of the Gospels, announces, as you heard this morning, just a moment ago, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, starts with the messenger in the wilderness. And John is introduced as someone the ancient prophet Isaiah referenced 500 years earlier, which we also heard today. An especially beautiful text, isn't it? Comfort, oh comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that she has served her term. A voice cries out, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. Then the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all people shall see it together. Wow. If you're a fan of Handel's Messiah, you know this text. It anticipates Israel's restoration following a harrowing captivity among the Babylonians. The Jews had been captured and carted away to a foreign nation. Isaiah speaks a powerful word of hopeful renewal. But there's another prophet of the 20th century who made good use of the same text. Do you remember? Do you remember who? Which prophet? Recall how Martin Luther King Jr. worked it into the climax of his famous speech on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in 1963. When he said, I have a dream, that's the phrase he added, I have a dream that one day every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill made low, and the rough places made straight. And then the glory of the Lord will be revealed. Then he added this, though. With this faith, we will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. We'll be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. With this faith, we'll be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together, knowing that we will be free one day. Man, are we bereft of that kind of language in our culture today? Do you feel it? When I was going through this this week, I just couldn't get over how bereft we were. In the manner of Isaiah, King's words were a stirring and indelible testament to how the future makes demands on the present. And when you consider the sweep of time from Isaiah's day, 2500 years ago to our present moment, the fact that these words still powerfully resonate speaks to the eternal purposes we address in this space. We know well that All people are grass, their constancy is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. This eternal condition, the the scope of God's range compared to our few years, offers hope for us. We're held in a grand sweep of time that has forward momentum anticipating God's fulfillment, calling for a new way of living that more nearly resembles what God has intended all along. That's the implication. This is why John's good news message begins with repentance. It's kind of counterintuitive I suppose that the good news begins with repentance because repentance sounds like bad news. but. The real reason to repent pertains to situating ourselves for the new thing God intends. We tend to get this all wrong, really. Real repentance is aspirational. Letting go of a lesser corrupt thing to take on the very much better thing. The good news of Jesus Christ has everything to do with what God intends for the world. And a proper way to think about this includes consideration of how our lives would need to change in order to exist in such a place as that. That's what Dr. King was suggesting as something to aspire towards, a community where everyone was judged by the content of their character, in his words, and not some external condition. What changes would we need to make in our individual lives in a world where peace and justice and love and hope prevail? What changes would Stephen Bauman need to adopt in order to live in such a place? It gets that personal and that granular think of it like this. Suppose you strongly desire to live in a household where everyone is valued and appreciated, where apology and forgiveness are part of the routine arrangements, where mercy and peace prevail, where no one takes advantage of another, where no one tries to take more than they need from the hands of another, where you get all of the love you ever wanted or desired and what sort of person would you need to become to live in a household such as that? What would you need to let go of and what would you need to take on? What would you need to aspire to? You know, friend, something has been nagging at me for a while. Where has the aspiration for growing in character run off to today? Why is there no public conversation about virtue or qualities of spiritual maturity like honor and integrity and fidelity and truth and compassionate regard and courage and wisdom and humility? Why do these things sound so uncool and de la classe out there? Am I alone in feeling our culture has been stripped of this dialogue, this concern for developing ever greater human decency and civility? You know, for a dozen years I broadcast radio spots on behalf of Christ Church that reached more than a million people at a time, on the subject of values, civility, and our common good. This seemed an important and relevant intervention for the church to advance. And now this project appears really prescient in anticipating our current cultural decrepitude. We were ahead of our time, I suppose, or, or maybe a bit too late. It was but a lone voice in the wilderness. And as you heard today, the phrase lone voice in the wilderness is inspired by Isaiah and John the Baptist. That's how John was presented in his epic historical moment, a time defined by corrupt political and religious cultures, fractious, violent, and indifferent to the welfare of those deemed outside the bounds of one's tribe. Sound familiar? Along with John's searing critique, His lone voice anticipated the arrival of another voice that would outstrip his own. And so Jesus came onto the scene. But as you well know, the change Jesus wrought didn't happen overnight. The the darkness had long been advancing and it would take many years, decades, centuries for the pinprick of light to grow into a brilliant radiance. You know, friends, the maddening thing is The maddening thing is that that we've known this bright light for two millennia, and still we strain to the breaking point to hang on to the wisdom that it illumines. It's a great mystery as to why this is, but it seems that every generation must contend with its version of the enveloping darkness. To me, it appears the stakes for wisdom and decency have been doubled, maybe tripled, this year in our season of Advent. I can't remember a December quite like it at any point in my adult life. Our worship, our scripture, our fellowship, our ministry, our prayer has never seemed more relevant our reliance on truth and virtue more purposeful and the Advent refrain, Come quickly, Lord Jesus, more dynamically urgent. Perhaps Isaiah's eloquence touches the spiritual funny bone and stirs us awake again to the idea that just maybe something different is possible that God will have the day." That's behind all the all here in this space, you know, behind all the music and the singing and the candles and the praying and the preaching. God will have the day. Every mountain and hill will be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all people shall see it together. But in order to find ourselves thrilled by this promise of the world made right brings with it the haunting thought that we each know what lurks in our own heart. Our role in corrupting this world the litany of ways in which our own sins have contributed to the heartbreak we're surrounded by, all of those times we've hardened our heart and kept right on walking, ignoring the person we hate and the cry of someone we need. God's realm is wonderful, fantastic, nearly unbelievable, and as Isaiah said, also comforting. For God does indeed bring the peace that passes all understanding, but, friends, this is important. This peace confronts all that does not conform to its requirements. It will confront all that does not encourage justice. So it stands to reason that things will need to change, things to which All of us are very, very attached, prejudices, and biases, and lack of compassion, and desire for revenge, and greed, and narcissism. We'll have to give up our strong inclinations for creating tribes of us and them, insiders and outsiders, winners and losers, and those that have and those that don't. That's the nature of the repentance John has in mind a simple, clear admission that we are who we are. And the recognition that who we are today stands somewhat against the requirements for citizenship in God's realm. Writing about his change of mind concerning issues of sexual orientation and gender identity ex-evangelical theologian David Gushy let me give you a little background on David Gushy a well-respected ethicist who fully identified with the evangelical community for decades and was highly regarded and he did a lot of homework and soul searching on the matter of sexual identity and gender identity, and he wound up changing his mind. And he wrote clearly and cogently about this, and as a result, he was kicked out of every single evangelical association and environment of which he had been a part, and lost many book contracts as well. That's David Gushy. He writes that every so often an issue comes along that requires a choice to be made, for or against slavery for or against women's ordination, for or against racial integration, for or against rescuing Jews during the Holocaust, for or against using government power to force better working conditions, for or against mass deportations of undocumented immigrants, and so on. Things for which ultimately there really is no middle ground on. At the end of the day, you can't be both against slavery and for maintaining the status quo of slavery, for instance. He continues, At the moment in which the moral pivot point occurs, Strong arguments can be made on both sides, and strong passions always arise. For Christians, these arguments and passions are always buttressed with Bible quotations. Only later does history declare who had it right and who did not. Meanwhile, in that instant, morally responsible people have to make their leap and trust God with both the consequences and divine judgment. John was announcing a pivot point in history. And 500 years earlier, Isaiah was announcing a pivot point in history, and Jesus continues to announce the point today. I mean, actually, I don't mean that generically. I mean, today. Repentance is good news because in God's realm, every last one of us is loved beyond our wildest imaginings. In God's household, there is more than enough love and goodwill to go around our corruptions ultimately are not held against us. It's a shocking statement. They are, if we hand them over, tossed out the window and everyone gets a fresh start. Everyone! 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 The good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Announces that no one is excluded from God's loving intention. Friends, here it is. What we're supposed to do is act like that is the law of the land. Amen.